economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of Reedy Melody Baker. I see it down the bunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Kas Mudde. My guest today is Leonie de Jonge. Leonie is an assistant professor in European politics and society at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. In 2019, she defended her PhD at the University of Cambridge on the success and failure of right-wing populist parties in the Benelux countries, which will be out as a book with Routledge later this month. Leonie is also an up-and-coming commentator in the Dutch media on the topic of the far right, as well as a critic of the way the media has covered the far right. These are topics we will discuss today. Welcome to the podcast, Leonie. Thanks for having me. You know what we start with. The first question is, as always, what was the first sports team you ever supported? I had to think about this for a bit, but the first memory of actually supporting any team is me roaming around in, a, in an orange shirt during football World Cups uh, because I grew up to Dutch parents in, in Luxembourg. The first team that I consciously supported was probably the first basketball team that I joined with the great name of BBC Les Sangliers Wils, which translates into the, the wild boars of Wils. I started playing at the age of 14 or 15, quite late, but since I was relatively tall for a Luxembourger and I could run straight, I was well coordinated, I was recruited to join the Luxembourgish national team shortly thereafter. Yeah, basketball has just had a huge impact on my life and it, it was really my entry ticket to go to university, something that I might not have considered if it weren't for basketball. <laughs> That's awesome. So second, what is your favorite political song? It's also a tough question because I can think of quite a few, but I would like to pitch a Luxembourgish song with the name Mir wollen ihr uns hemischt weisen, which is by Serge Tonach, and the title translates into something like We want to show you our country or our heritage. And it came out in 2015 as part of a grassroots campaign to foster intercultural dialogue between local residents and refugees. And the guy who wrote it, Serge Tonar, he has been quite influential in Luxembourg by trying to sort of translate the rising nationalist sentiments into a force of inclusion rather than exclusion. For instance, by rewriting these old folk songs in Luxembourgish and then placing them into a more contemporary context. Oh, wow. That is quite original. And finally, what is your favorite political book? That's also a tough one because uh, I'm a political scientist and I think pretty much everything is political, which is a bit of a blessing and a curse. But the book that has had most influence on me as a political scientist is Peter Mayer's Ruling the Void. That's just hands down the best account to understand current crisis of representation in Western Europe. But I want to pitch another one because my favorite book at the moment is Gloria Wecker's White Innocence. So Gloria Wecker is a Dutch anthropologist. She was born in Suriname, but moved to the Netherlands in the 1950s. And her book really explains some of the paradoxes that characterize Dutch society, uh, specifically this, this general tendency for the Dutch to consider themselves, present themselves as this socially progressive and passionately anti-discriminatory people. But that then coexists with quite explicit everyday racial discrimination. And I think what's really great about the book that Wecker wrote is that she manages to pinpoint and describe and analyze some of these contemporary developments. And it helped me navigate and make sense of the very strange paradoxes that I was witnessing and that I have witnessed since moving here in 2019. 
Right. And this is what I wanted to talk about. Incidentally, it's interesting to see that the response to Gloria Wecker's book is, to a certain extent, a huge improvement over the response to Philomena Acid's book, Everyday Racism, which, if I'm not mistaken, came out in the early 90s and had a very similar type of argumentation. And there were just virulent responses to it and no debate whatsoever, as at least we have a debate, not to say that the Dutch are particularly open to criticism, but we do have a debate about Becker and we do have a sizable portion of people who say, yes, this is actually an insightful and useful analysis. So as you already indicated, while you are a Dutch citizen and grew up with Dutch parents, you also grew up in Luxembourg. And after that, you studied in the UK. And it was only in 2019 when you started your job at the University of Groningen that you lived for the first time in your country. I mentioned earlier, my parents are originally from the Netherlands, but they moved to Luxembourg in the 70s because my grandparents decided to start a campsite. So something quintessentially Dutch, you, you might say. But then after high school in Luxembourg, so I went to school all the way through high school. And after I finished high school, I was recruited to play basketball at a junior college in the U.S., so I moved first to North Dakota and then from there to Iowa and finally then to the UK and only moved here in 2019. So I've really just moved here. And that means that I grew up speaking Dutch. I have a very Dutch name. So I really, I go by as Dutch. People just assume I'm Dutch. And of course I am. I now since recently have even a Dutch passport. I didn't have one till recently because I lived in Luxembourg, voted there, played for the national team. But now that I moved here, I decided to also get my Dutch passport and I was able to vote for the first time. And I would say settling in for me has been easier than for some others. I feel at home. I like it here. But also been very new. And of course, the Dutch are very direct. So that has something that takes getting used to, which I can appreciate. And perhaps more importantly, because I grew up outside of the Netherlands, I really miss quite a lot of the cultural reference points. And it has led to some very strange interactions or instances where I just can't really make sense of situations. Yeah, it's a pretty unique experience. Your book focuses on the success and failure of right-wing populist parties in the Benelux countries, which are Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. Let's first look at them in isolation. And let's start with the best-known case, which is the Netherlands. Yeah, as you say, the book, it starts out with this puzzle. Growing up to Dutch parents in Luxembourg, I was fascinated by the fact that the Netherlands, a country that I knew for its tolerance and social progressivism, that this country witnessed the rise of a populist radical right, while Luxembourg, which generally seemed more conservative to me, didn't. And when you look at what's in between these two countries, you have Belgium, and then the puzzle becomes even more fascinating because right-wing populist parties are very strong in the north, but not in the southern French-speaking part. And we will get to that later. But yeah, in the book, I try to explain that variation, right? So why are right-wing populist parties more successful in some countries and regions than in others? So yeah, let's start with the Netherlands. The Netherlands actually long seemed immune to the rise of the far right. So up until the turn of the 21st century, there was no successful far right party in the Netherlands. And considering the fact that now we have four right wing populist parties in parliament, it's actually really hard to believe that the contemporary Dutch far right doesn't have deep or long historical roots. Now, in the post-war period, there were some extreme right movements that popped up here and there. You've written about that in the 1980s and in the 1990s. There were the so-called center parties by Hans Janmaat. He even managed to get a seat in parliament. But his movements and these parties 
they never really managed to break through electorally or make a big splash. They remained on the fringes. And it wasn't until the turn of the 21st century that the country really witnessed the rise of several influential right-wing populist parties, including the nice Pim for Town, which imploded soon after its leader was shot and soon after the party entered parliament. That then gave room to Geert Wilders' Freedom Party, which we all know. And this party then was recently joined by the Forum for Democracy, which is led by Thierry Baudet. He entered parliament in 2017. And this party has since split up into several smaller factions, including Ja 21, the Right Answer 21, and Groep van Haga. So to sum up, there are now four right-wing populist parties in the Dutch parliament. It's hard to keep track. Together, they hold 28 seats, which is some sort of a record. So what's the situation of right-wing populist parties in Belgium? Yeah, so Belgium is particularly interesting because there are really important regional differences with regards to the electoral performance of these parties. Belgian politics is crazy complex, and I won't go into too much detail here, but there are different territorial regions and different language groups within the country. And what's so cool is that it provides an ideal laboratory environment for comparativists like myself. So there's no national party system, not even for federal elections. So essentially, you have two separate cases within one country. In the north, you have Flanders, that is the Dutch-speaking region. And then in the south, you have Wallonia, the French-speaking part. Now, Flanders was home to one of the strongest and earliest manifestations of a new generation of far-right parties in post-war Europe, notably with the Flams Belang, formerly known as the Flams Bloc, the Flemish Interest Party. And the Flams Belang has held seats in the federal parliament since the 1980s, and it then peaked in 2004. It won something like 24% of the vote in the regional elections, and then it started losing support. But now it's really making a massive comeback in the federal elections in May 2019. It became the second biggest party, winning nearly 20% of the vote, and it currently polls again at around 25% in Flanders. But if we then move across the language border to the Francophone part, it's really fascinating, but there's never been a successful far-right challenger there. And such movements have occasionally popped up. There was even a Belgian Front National, which was ultimately taken to court by its French namesake for copying its name and its emblem. Then there was the Parti Populaire, which was led by Michel Mouricamen, who is sometimes referred to as the Belgian Donald Trump, also quite a fascinating figure. And that party was dissolved in 2019 because it lost its one and only seat in the federal parliament. So basically, right-wing populist parties do much better in the Dutch-speaking part in Flanders than in Wallonia. Right. And then finally, the country that you grew up in and that almost no one studies, Luxembourg. What's the situation of right-wing populist parties there? Yeah, Luxembourg is probably the most obscure case. Actually, when I, when I moved to North Dakota and I said I was from Luxembourg, people just assumed I meant Luxembourg and Kentucky. <laughs> very obscure country, not very well known outside, but actually really interesting. And right-wing populist parties, they have popped up in all neighboring countries, right? In Belgium, in Germany and in France, but not in Luxembourg. And it's interesting because Luxembourg has had one of the highest number of immigrants relevant to its size, 
And there has been some xenophobic sentiments. There have also been some type of right-wing populist movements. They have surfaced occasionally. But again, they never really managed to gain ground electorally. Now, there is one party that is located on the right end of the political spectrum. And you could say that it's like a soft version of right-wing populism, or it serves a functional equivalent of right-wing populism. It's called the ADR, the Alternative Democratic Reform Party. But it's much softer in its rhetoric than in neighboring countries. For instance, it's not really vocally anti-immigrant, but it's definitely stoking these nationalist sentiments and spreading fears of over-foreignization. But overall, it seems fair to say that Luxembourg has not yet witnessed the rise of a strong, electorally successful right-wing populist contender. Right. That makes it interesting because a party like ADR within the Luxembourg context, right, you would say would be a functional equivalent. In the Dutch context, they would be centrist yes. at best, like they would have yeah. six, seven parties to the right of them at least. So you have already indicated that you explained this. And the key explanations in the public debate about why the far right is successful or not always come back to economic anxiety and cultural backlash. Do these two broad explanations help us understand the different situations in the Benelux countries? The short answer is no. And that's actually what's so fascinating. In the book, I set out to explore these conventional explanations, including what you mentioned, these traditional so-called demand side factors, but also institutional as well as party organizational features, these so-called supply side explanations. The electoral performance of these right-wing populist parties in the literature is typically conceptualized as a marketplace. So we use the metaphor of a marketplace where success and failure is ultimately contingent on public demand and party supply. And using this metaphor, right, using the traditional demand and supply side framework, I show that demand is actually relatively constant across the Benelux region. And to illustrate that, I want to bring up the case of Wallonia again, the French-speaking part of Belgium, because it is a textbook breeding ground for the populist radical right. The economic and cultural backlash theory really doesn't apply there. Because studies actually show that voters in Wallonia do not have fundamentally different views on political topics and on socioeconomic questions compared to the Flemings. There are regional differences regarding views on immigration, but they are very minimal. In fact, if anything, the studies show that voters in Wallonia are even a little bit more Islamophobic than the Flemings. But the region is much poorer than the North. So really conventional demand side theories, including this economic and cultural backlash theories, would lead us to expect that popular appetite for the far right would be stronger there than in Flanders. And it really cannot explain the puzzle. So I looked at whether there were any credible, well-organized parties that were able to, yeah, to tap into this lingering demand. And there you can see indeed that the supply is much weaker in Luxembourg and in Wallonia. You might say there just haven't been any charismatic leaders or credible political alternatives to tap into this demand. But even that cannot fully solve our puzzle, right? I wasn't quite satisfied by that because it fails to explain the timing of the breakthrough of these parties. So then the question becomes, how do right-wing populist parties make their voices heard in the first place? And that is where these contextual factors that I argue for come in. And my main argument ultimately is that voter demand and party supply depend on the context. They are shaped by media landscape as well as the party landscape in which these right-wing populist players operate. 
So these are my two key players, these gatekeepers. Right. And I think your most original contribution is in particular by looking at the media and not just in the way how they cover various issues, but you actually also speak to journalists about how they see their role in covering the far right. And so what do you find there? Yeah, maybe it's important, though, to underline that I have two key players in the book, mainstream parties and the media, and it's really how they interact together. But yes, for the sake of the argument, let's zoom in in this one of these key players, the media, because for my research, I interviewed editors and chiefs in all three countries, and I spoke to journalists, and I essentially asked them, how do you deal with the radical right? And it turns out that there are really big differences. Just like mainstream parties, media practitioners can choose between three strategies when it comes to dealing with the populist radical right. And these strategies range from one, demarcation, two, confrontation, and to three, accommodation. And these are, of course, purely theoretical. It's not like journalists sit down and choose consciously one of these three. So purely theoretical journalists might opt for this demarcation strategy. And in the purest form, that would be a cordon sanitaire, right? So a guarded line that you put around the populist radical right to sort of put them offside. And the aim, and that's really important, the aim is not to ignore these parties, but to really fully isolate them. So that's the first strategy, demarcation. And then the second strategy, media practitioners can opt for a confrontational stance. So they might opt to overly critically encounter the populist radical right. For instance, they might seek to distance themselves from the populist radical right, or they want to make them show their true face. And then the third strategy, they might opt for an accommodative strategy by offering a platform to right-wing populist parties to spread their views. That can look differently. For instance, journalists might incorporate some of their rhetoric into their news coverage, or they might also focus exclusively on the issues that are typically owned by the populist radical right. Think of immigration, nationalism, crime-related topics. And in the book, I show that in the Netherlands and in Flanders, the media have gradually become more accommodative towards the populist radical right. So you can really trace the ways in which the media deal with the far right over time. And I show that there has been a shift from first in the past, there used to be demarcation, then confrontation, and increasingly now accommodation. And you see that there is really a tendency both in the Netherlands and in Flanders to amplify the voice of the common people. And more generally, journalists, they tend to believe that it's their role to collect facts and simply pass them on to society. And that's really different from Luxembourg and in Valonia, where there are some written and unwritten rules about not to give a platform to the far right. And there, media practitioners really see themselves as the watchdogs of democracy. And as one of them said to me, as watchdogs, it is our job to bark and it's necessary to bite. So they consistently really refuse to give space to the far right. They adopt for this demarcation strategy. Now, whether that's good or bad for journalism or whether suppressing certain tendencies is good or bad for democracy, I think that's an entirely different question. But it has made it difficult for the populist radical right to break through. Right. And so people would say they can do that because there is no far right. Right. And I was just thinking that in the Netherlands, this accommodation really started with the Lisbon for time and started after an electoral breakthrough when they became big. Interestingly, though, in Flanders, when they had that breakthrough, the cordon sanitaire was introduced. 
And the accommodation strategy really only started when Flams Belang became smaller, when they lost. So it can be done under both circumstances. What do you think works best to keep them small? And what do you think is best for democracy? It's a very, very tough question. And journalists, of course, ask me this all the time. So what's the right way to deal with the far right? And actually, there is no blueprint. I think what one of the big, big lessons for my research is that it's actually really important to think about where you as a journalist and as an editor set your line to what you deem acceptable and unacceptable and how far you will go. Because if journalists don't set that limit right, for how far they will go, then it's really easy for the far right to continue to push that limit and move even further and challenge that. And that's actually what we're seeing. And the result of that is that you see mainstreaming of the far right and normalization of far right ideologies. So my lesson is not so much that there should be limits, but that every journalist should think about where their limits are. It's not for me to say where that limit is, but I think there should really be conscious discussion and constant discussion about where those limits are. And that should be done before the far right becomes big enough to matter because, and that's very crucial, the timing is really important. If there is a fully watertight cordon sanitaire in place before the far right breaks through, then it becomes really difficult for far right parties to break through. And of course, it needs to be completely watertight. And for that, you need mainstream parties. Because in the Netherlands, of course, the radicalization of the political discourse didn't necessarily come from the far right. It came from the center right and the center left went along with it. This is also kind of ironic because, as you say, timing is important, which would mean that actually at this point in time, it would be most important that journalists in Wallonia and Luxembourg are having this discussion. Whereas as far as I can see, this discussion is actually much more alive within Flanders and particularly within the Netherlands over the last, I would say, year been a lot of debate about how to term the far right, how to deal with them. Now, we recently had elections in the Netherlands. How did you think the media did there? I think in some ways in the Netherlands, the damage has already been done, right? So my research shows that the timing is so crucial for the effectiveness of a media strategy. And in the Netherlands, the media has really contributed to the normalization of the far right. And I think it's questionable whether that can be reversed. But having said that, and I think you're absolutely right, there has been a discussion ongoing and there is also some evidence of self-reflection and I think also growing awareness that it is not necessary to grant front page coverage to Baudet every single time he creates a new scandal. And there's also a discussion, as you say, on terminology. And I think political scientists need to also consider whether we are not actually dealing with an extreme right party. I think we are at this point. But it's, it's a nuclear option for political scientists, and we are very hesitant to use that term. But I think in the run-up to the 2021 elections, Baudet continued to be invited to talk shows, and he goes much further than his predecessors, right, in terms of how far he goes with his far-right ideology. And when he was invited to these talk shows, he shamelessly spread misinformation about the coronavirus, among other things. And the problem is very much that in the Netherlands, and also I would argue elsewhere, we are faced with a public service broadcaster that is primarily concerned about being neutral and balanced to a point where it allows for fake news being spread on primetime television. And I think that that is problematic and that this has facilitated the mainstreaming of the far right. And I think that also raises this broader question about 
what the role of the media is in a democratic society, right? Are journalists gatekeepers or are they neutral transmitters of information? And I think that's that's a question that members of the media, as well as academics, need to continue to ask. Right. And of course, living in the U.S., we've gone through this for four or five years, and I would argue haven't learned much. But two days ago, Geert Wilders tweeted that all journalists are kind of scum of the earth to translate it, Teich van der Riegel. And I found this very interesting how journalists responded. So the organization of journalists in the Netherlands wanted to go into a conversation with him. And one journalist tweeted something like, well, but I interviewed you a few years ago and we had a very nice conversation. Why would you do that? And I wonder at times, because I've always argued, well, this it's just about money in the end. I mean, they know exactly what they're doing, but this is what sells. These articles are being read. And as long as we consumers read them and watch them, they're going to publish them. But in some of these responses, I really worry, do all journalists understand that the far right is a threat to liberal democracy and, importantly, to independent media? This is such a key question. I think I'm not quite as cynical as you are. I think the journalists are aware of it and that they are constantly thinking about. And I go into newsrooms quite a bit because there's also quite a bit of demand right now, like we said earlier, to rethink terminology. And it's really causing headaches for journalists how to deal with people like Baudet and Builders. I don't think it's not just about money. And I think oftentimes journalists would clearly say, no, it's not about that. It's also about their journalistic curiosity. They think for the readers, it's interesting to hear, and also especially in the Netherlands and in Flanders, to talk to voices that you would disagree with. It's part of what the media think their role is in the society. They think it's a forum or a platform for debate and that these clashing opinions should be carried out in the public domain and in the media sphere. And the problem is that there are no limits to that. And then you give a platform to one of these far-right leaders and they say something racist or they, they cause a scandal, they push the boundaries. I mean, recently we had Tom van Grieke in Flanders who made statements about preferring an explicitly white dominant society in Flanders. And that then causes an uproar. And I think you see continuously the same mechanism. So you see there's a journalist who goes in debate with the far-right, then the far-right says something scandalous then there is some sort of a uproar from the public, from breeders, like, whoa, this went too far. And only then do we see this sort of self-reflection happening. So only after having said something racist, something scandalous, then there is a reflex to say, ah, maybe we shouldn't have done this. And I think that is exactly problematic. I think the media in general and every newsroom and journalists in particular for themselves should think about where are your own limits and, and what will you tolerate and what will you not do? And, and yeah, I think if that isn't done, then what happens is what happens now, that the far right pushes these limits of what we deem acceptable. And if we leave it up to the far right, then yeah, like I said, that these far right ideologies become normalized. Right. We see that, I would say, in extremists in the Netherlands, where the political debate, as well as the public debate, particularly on social media, has moved very sharply to the right. And one of the things that we have seen over years now is that critics of the far right in the Netherlands have been harassed online, more recently also including various academics and others who have spoken out publicly against the far right or about the far right. And this has in particularly targeted women, younger women, actually, and people of color. You were recently also threatened 
do you feel this problem is taken seriously enough in the Netherlands? And can and should anything be changed? Yeah, I, I wish I knew the answer to that last question. So over the past month or so, three female academics on the far right were targeted by this extreme right organization. And I think it's important to note that that fits a pattern, that fits a broader pattern of academics, but also journalists being insulted, harassed, intimidated for their work. And that's also something that doesn't just affect the Netherlands. In other words, I think it's symptomatic of a broader tendency to attack liberal democracy. And that is deeply, deeply worrying. Yeah, what, what can be done? I think first, as an academic community, we need to speak up against these sort of attacks because an attack on one of us is really an attack on all of us because it's a threat to academic freedom. On a practical level, I think universities should do more to protect researchers, right? They, they send us into the public debate. They push us to make impact and outreach and all that. So they have a responsibility to protect researchers. And then finally, yeah, I think politicians also really need to speak up because it's, again, about setting limits to what can and cannot be tolerated in a liberal democratic society. Right. Yeah, I think it really has to go beyond just a law and order issue which at the moment it is. And this is always very difficult because particularly social media, it's almost always anonymous. In your case, in the case of your colleagues, it was stickers of a certain organization that says that you're being watched. And the person behind that organization says, well, I just make these stickers. I don't put them on, so I'm not legally responsible. And we can go in circles on that ever and ever. But in the end, it is not really that sticker or necessarily that person that is the issue. There's a much broader issue. And that is how far can you go in criticizing and in intimidating? I wanted to end with my basic final question, which is, what is the greatest misunderstanding about the far right in the Benelux? I think we tend to ascribe a very passive role to both the media and particularly to mainstream parties, right? They are often seen as the victims and they like to portray themselves as the victims of the rise of the right. But I think that is really misleading. And one of the main lessons that I draw in the book is that the spread of right-wing populism is not spreading like a virus. It's not contagious. It's not simply a matter of chance or accident, but it's ultimately a matter of choice. So the choices that mainstream parties make and that also the media make do play a crucial role in the diffusion of right-wing populism. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Leonie. Thanks for having me. If you want to know more about Leonie de Jonge, you can follow her on Twitter at at L underscore de Jonge and her book, The Success and Failure of Right-Wing Populist Parties in the Benelux Countries, will be out later this month in the Rutledge Studies in Extremism and Democracy series. If you can afford it, buy it. Hopefully, there will be also an affordable paperback out soon. This was another episode of Radical, the podcast on the radical aspects of music, politics, and sports, hosted by me, Kas Mudde. The music is from the Godots with their classic song, Karl Marx supported Millwall. I want to thank Tarek Sidik for helping me with the editing of today's episode. If you want to know more about Radical, visit our website at www.radicalpodcast.com. Radical spelled R-A-D-I-K-A-A-L. And if you like the podcast, please rate and subscribe. Also, please share it with friends and on social media. Thank you for listening. The economy is crumbling. They say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It
goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of leaning Melody Baker. I see him down the bunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.